All right, guys, thanks for joining again. Um, welcome if this is your first time. We're excited to be back for our second episode now. Um, we have a great case for you guys today. Um, but first, this is an excellent medical student-led podcast that's only for educational purposes, and it's not intended to be medical advice under any circumstance. Just a reminder, um, I'm Kevin. I'm now an M4, planning to go on internal med. Voice sounds like this because I'm getting married on Saturday and have been uh, being a lot more than I hope to be. And then we now have Dr. Tommy King here. <laughs> <laughs> sounds strange. He just graduated, so he's officially Dr. Tommy King. Um, he'll be a PGY1 here in July doing internal medicine. And Dr. Abrams is back with us, too. And I just want to say we're so happy that Tom's staying with us. <laughs> I'm happy to be staying as well. I'm very happy. <laughs> very excited. And then with us today, we have Clara. Clara's an M4 playing go into family med. And she was a captain of her ultimate frisbee team when she was an undergrad. It's pretty cool. And then with Clara is Sam Kiefer. He's an M4 planning to go into emergency med. He has career interests in ultrasound, recidivism, and health education. So thank you guys for coming and joining us. We're excited to have you. It's going to be a great case and can't wait to hear what you guys think. All right, so let's, let's get things off. So Alcott one, um, the chief complaint is this is a patient, 80-year-old female presenting with a three-month history of worsening bilateral lower extremity swelling. What starts to go through your mind this kind of complaint? Not necessarily like specific diagnoses, but more so what buckets, um, categories of problems are you guys thinking of? Um, so like the first one that comes into my mind is like cardiac problem. Sure. sure. And then I guess like an acute versus chronic type of bucket. Yeah. Um, looking at the time course. You know, I think both great thoughts. And then when, when I first heard this, another thing to kind of think of was like, what is edema? Mm. And keeping that in mind too can kind of help you narrow um, your train of thought. I think just briefly, venous, there's venous edema, which is protein poor fluids really because it increased capillary filtration um, that can't be accommodated by a normally functioning lymphatic system or you can also have lymphedema it's protein rich and it's, it's usually resulted from a lymphatic obstruction so before going on I thought it might be a good point to when I when I, when I hear edema how I try to organize my thoughts um, first kind of figure out the distribution is it something localized so is it like a hypersensitivity or infectious process is it unilateral and with unilateral you're, you're thinking like DVT until proven otherwise um, but the lymphatic obstruction also falls under that category. But I feel like a majority of times when we hear edema, it's bilateral or extremities. Like, like you guys first mentioned, is this something cardiac? Could it, is it the lungs? Is it the kidneys? Is it the liver? Like, there's a whole bunch of things that could be causing this. So I'm going to help you out and give you some more information now. That, okay. So we can tackle and see where this is coming from. So the, the, the patient has a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease. A month ago, she saw her PCP. She was started on furosemide. Originally 20 milligrams daily. And then uh, her edema didn't improve. And this was seven days prior to admission. She had her dose increased to 40 milligrams daily. And they also added spironolactone at that time. Continued to be edematous up to her thighs. She denied shortness of breath, chest pain, orthopnea, or PND. She had no recent travel or prolonged immobilization. She did report some abdominal distension with a recent weight gain of about 20 pounds over the past month. Denied diarrhea, vomiting, or abdominal pain. And then uh, these are the meds she's on. So she's on Frosamide 40, which I mentioned, then recently started spironolactone. She's also on the Sartan, um, daily aspirin, aldronate, vitamin D, calcium, and celecoxib. She's a never smoker. She last drank alcohol, and it was occasionally in 2013. So knowing a little bit more, her, her, her past history are, are worrisome for mm -hmm. cardiac etiology. Her, the ROS doesn't really help us narrow down to a particular cardiac or pulmonary process. The edema is worsening. It's not responding to the diuretic. She has this weight gain. So what do you guys think of this, this new information? 
Sure. So I think the new information is it seems she continues to be kind of holding on to this fluid um, despite what would be a cardiac intervention with the Lasics. Yeah. So then where is the fluid coming from? Um, the fact that she has abdominal distension um, and 20 pounds of weight gain would make me think of something like ascites. Okay. Um, and either maybe something that has to do with um, her having um, a protein gradient that's driving that or if she has the backup of fluid that's driving that. I, I don't think you could have said it better. You know, they're a really good train of thought. Let's let's talk about the ascites a little bit. So what other kind of things in the clinical picture would you be looking for to kind of help direct you towards that? So I guess one of the things that we'd want to be looking at is where, like, what's the origin of the ascites? Is it due to, like, a liver dysfunction? Is it due to, like, what Sam was saying? Is she losing any protein through her kidneys? Or it could be, like, a malignant ascites. So it might act not be from the, the liver itself. It might be a malignant. Yeah. Uh, you guys are great. I got to say, since I know this case was I actually took care of this person, one of the things I will say about, about this, this person is one of the healthiest 88-year-olds <laughs> I've ever seen. And uh, I actually think she might have been working up to her mid-80s and had been always just remarkably, remarkably active. And this sort of came on, as she said, it came on over three months. Mm-hmm. You know, another big cause of PLE edema is cardiac stuff. And we talked about that a little bit. But other things in the clinical picture for that would would support something being more cardiac? What would you kind of be expecting to see then? Um, I guess if it's an issue with kind of like the pump, I would expect to see um, if it was like a left-sided heart failure, either crackles in her lungs, that she would have some shortness of breath, uh, that she would have that classic like orthopnea, I think. But also um, the lower extremity, you must still kind of fits, but yeah. something like you be there. Great thought, guys. And I love how you're thinking so far. I think you were thinking how Dr. Abrams was thinking when we saw this patient. <laughs> um, so I, I think now's a, a good point to talk about a little schema for edema. And I, I think you can kind of stratify it based on chronicity, like you mentioned earlier, whether it's something more acute or a chronic process and whether this is unilateral or bilateral. And then when you do that, also think, keeping in mind, what is it most likely going to be? What are some other things that it could be? We'll keep in mind, but it, it's less likely. So for the acute unilateral, like we, we talked about, it's DVT until proven otherwise. Um, but that's some, then some other, another big cause would be A lymphatic obstruction. And then on the more chronic side, BLE edema in those over 50 is almost always secondary to venous insufficiency. And there's some, there's some other more uncommon causes. And then on the bilateral side, in an, an acute bilateral lower extremity edema is not very common. It's, it could be explained by an acute and chronic process of a worsening systemic cause that we talked about, like CHF, cirrhosis, or CKD. But then the bilateral symptoms with a more chronic picture, the most likely is venous insufficiency, pulmonary hypertension, CHF, lymphedema, medications, or idiopathic. And then you have a, more, a little more uncommon in liver disease, um, nephrotic syndrome, your lean protein, preeclampsia, anemia, and then even more down that list is rare ones, like protein-losing enteropathy, restrictive pericarditis, or restrictive cardiomyopathy. I did just want to talk about, I think, this is something I like to try to remember because we'll, we'll get a lot of questions on these, but what kind of medications are associated with BLs like edema as a side effect? I think a big one are calcium channel blockers. Yeah, yeah. yeah calcium channel blockers, I feel like is, that's a pretty hallmark side effect associated with them, specifically the dihydroperidine ones. Also hydralazine and beta blockers and NSAIDs are smaller ones that can also just a side effect. All right, I think it's a good point to move on to LFO3. Before, you, yeah, before yeah. you do that, just 
So we're going to go on the physical exam now. Mm -hmm. I guess I am interested in, so what are you guys, what are you guys looking for on physical exam that may push you one way or the other? I guess, so like, uh, like Sam was saying, if you're suspecting cardiac, you'd look for both left-sided and right-sided failure. So you listen to the lungs to hear for crackles. You would look at, uh, to see if there's JVD, to see if there's venous backup. And then also like kind of forward going, you'd see maybe is there, like are the pulses palpable in, you know, pedal pulses palpable or is there good, like blood flow to the bilateral lower extremities? Yeah, I think our exam can tell us a lot. I think going back to what Kevin said of like venous versus lymphedema, just like, is it pitting or is it not pitting? Yeah. Is it kind of firm, right. establishing that. Mm -hmm. um, and then as far as like ascites go, looking for signs of like liver failure or like other signs of like hyperestrogenism or yeah. things like that. Mm -hmm. I think you guys know, I feel like this chief complaint is one where the physical exam can be really helpful in terms of characterizing pointing us towards what is the cause, right? Like you guys said. Tommy, you got anything to add on there? Yeah, um, so uh, Sam and Clara, I think, did a great job. Talking about the, you know, exam findings I might be looking for, given, given the differential they have. I, I, did, I did want you guys to think about, like, when you're looking at signs of heart failure, there's some things that are very specific and very useful, and some things that may appear but are not as useful. So, like, what do you guys think would be the top two or three, like, most specific signs um, that you'd be looking for in a patient with acute decompensated heart failure in terms of physical exam signs? I think JVD is probably one of the more specific. Yeah. I think an S3 heart sound as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. Abrams. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. S3 and JV are the big money. Signs, um, you know, things like rails and crackles are definitely helpful, but those are not very specific. There's plenty of things that can cause those, um, those particular physical exam findings or fluid in the lungs in general, um, whatever the cause may be. So I wanted to, to make that point, but excellent, excellent thoughts about what might be going on, um, especially talking about not just heart failure, but like hepatic, like hepatic cardiac syndrome, um, renal cardiac syndrome, when other organs are failing, um, it puts, you know, extra stress on the heart and like kind of causes heart failure through different mechanisms. So I love where you guys are going so far. All right, let's reveal the physical exam. So her vitals, she's 98.4, respiratory rate is 20, her heart rate 67 beats per minute. She is hypertensive at 172 over 69. Her most recent weight was 174 pounds and she was satting 100% on her air. Under constitutional, she's alert and oriented, she's cooperative, no apparent distress. There was no JVD. Her lungs were cleared all auscultation bilaterally, no crackles or wheezing. On cardiac exam, she had a regular rate and rhythm, normal S1, S2, there was no murmur. Abdominal exam was soft, mildly distended, non-tender to palpation. On MSK, she had doughy edema up to her thighs bilaterally. There's no redness, warmth, or swelling at the joints. Her neuro and skin exam were normal. There was no bruising or rashes. What are we thinking now? <laughs> helpful, not helpful? I think it's helpful in that it, it kind of rules, it leads you away from certain things. Yeah. Like I'm less suspicious of, I would say heart failure. So yeah. I mean, for all the reasons we talked about, right? Like the things you were hoping to see, they're not here. Mm -hmm. What do you think about doughy edema? <laughs> what is like, I, I guess, I what, what is that exactly describing? Exactly. It feels like dough. You ever touched dough before? That's what it felt like. Okay. Huh. I don't know if you have a pearl on this. Stuff. I really, actually, I don't. Uh, it's, it is something that, that I've seen before, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that it leaves me one way or another, but it's, you know, it, it, there's sort of this swishy edema you get with heart failure often, and it really didn't feel like that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs>
So we're not we're not finding any of the physical exam findings that would suggest a, a cardiac or a, um, a liver type picture. What kind of things would you start considering now at this point? Maybe still like a nephrotic syndrome type picture. Yeah. <laughs> and with like, there's really nothing on physical exam that would kind of help you elucidate whether that was involved or not. Like we're, we're not seeing her urine, is it foamy? Anything else you guys thinking of? I think it's also helpful just to have like no skin changes. Mm -hmm. And just like, if this is like venous stasis, there's no like hyperpigmentation, there's right. no ulcers, there's no things that would tell us that there is just like a general backup of yeah. fluid. Yeah, great, great pickup there. Same with like no, no redness, warmth. Or makes me think like it's not like a cellulitis that it, she's having an infection that's causing a more local response. Yeah. So again, the, the physical exam looks pretty unremarkable, but in a lot of ways, it's really helpful in directing our thinking away from a lot of things. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it's not screaming out like, oh, we got to head down this path, yeah. right? No. That's, that's what the eyes are for. It, it could do that. I did a bad physical exam. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty good. I think it's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. How much do we trust Dr. Abrams' physical exam? <laughs> I feel like Copy the residents note. <laughs> I feel like the doughy needs to be in quotes now. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we got some laughs. And I'll walk through them and then we can talk about them. So on CBC, she had a white count of 10. Her red blood cells was 3.9. Her hemoglobin was low at 10.5 um, with a hematocrit of 32.8. Her MCV was 82.4, so a normal CIDIC. Um, her RDW was elevated at 16.8, and her platelet count was elevated at 480. Um, also got a UA, and there was there's no evidence of an infectious process. There's no RBCs or WBCs in her urine. No protein. And then on CMP, sodium is 134, potassium 3.8, chloride 102, Bicarb 25, her BUN was 18, and her creatinine was 0.8. Glucose a little bit up at 110. And then her total protein was down 4.3. Her albumin was down at 1.5, and calcium was down at 7.5. Her liver chemistry tests were normal, didn't have elevated T-belly. Um, we also got a chest X-ray EKG at this time. Um, and the chest X-rays noted a bibasilar pleural effusion and atelectasis that couldn't exclude an underlying pulmonary process. And then the EKG was sinus rhythm. There were some premature atrial contractions, but it was otherwise normal. Why don't you guys just talk about there what sticks out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a big one. Um, but let, let's talk about what sticks out there. So definitely the low protein sticks out. Yeah, sounds like it's probably involved in the pathophys of the swelling. And the no... The no protein in the UA, but I also know that protein in UA only measures a certain type of protein. It doesn't sure. measure all protein. Right. So yeah, wait, Clara, what? So the protein in the UA, what types of proteins are you missing? So we're missing uh, immunoglobin. So yeah, and, and some light chains too, right? Yeah. Awesome. And then uh, what do you guys think about our like, kidney renal function? It looks okay. I mean, yeah. creatinine is where you kind of expect it to be. Um, 0.8. I think as you get older, you lose like muscle mass as normal to have it a little bit yeah. lower. Um, other than that, there's nothing kind of that striking other than what Claire mentioned. So if, if you were going over this, if you were going over this case um, and you're looking at the anemia and the creatinine, what, what other information would you want to know and, and look back at? 
uh, before like determining what exactly might be going on. This is a totally guess what I'm thinking, but you want to see the trends, right? So you want to say, you know, if this patient's anemic, where do they usually live? Is this an acute change? Have they been at, you know, whatever it is, 10.5 for years and years? Um, same thing goes with the creatinine. There, it doesn't appear to be an AKI, but, um, you know, when you guys rotate through renal, it, it, does, it definitely matters what the baseline is. So that's just one, one thing definitely to keep in mind. I wonder why the calcium is low, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so take a deep breath of that. And, and again, you guys have been great so far and, and grew up a wonderful thought process around this. And, and it is time to stop for a second and say, so there's the, so it could have been one of these three things, right? Because you really sort of threw three things on the table to start with, right? So it could be that. Of course, you have to start thinking about alternative diagnoses now. And there's information out there to immediately think about what those alternative diagnoses are. Um, I don't know if Kevin was going to comment on the calcium and what, what that means, um, which is maybe nothing, actually. Like in this context, the, the lab reading comes back calcium low. But we have, we have to all look at that in the context of her overall protein picture with her albumin. Right. So there's a, the corrected calcium, right? And it, it is a formula, and it's, the, it's calcium plus 0.8 multiplied by four, which is a normal albumin, and then minus the measured albumin. And the corrected calcium in this case was, she has a calcium of 9.5. So she's normal calcium. So what we're seeing here from the labs is she's anemic. She doesn't have proteinuria. Her LFTs are normal. White blood cells are upper limit and normal. Um, otherwise, it's isolated hypoproteinemia. And what came back is hypocalcemia, but corrected, it's a, she's normal calcemic. The chest x-ray couldn't rule out a pulmonary process, but bivasilar effusions is pretty nonspecific. Wouldn't have helped us much anyways. It's probably consistent with her low albumin, right? You just start third spacing fluid in funny places. So we have this information. What would you guys kind of be interested in looking further into at this point? I guess, what, what, what do you think about her anemia? Is it abnormal for an 88-year-old woman to be anemic? Well, I guess, I mean, what, what Tommy was saying is kind of looking at her trends. What do, where does she normally sure. live? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be super helpful. Like if she's <laughs> normally a 14 and now she's a 10. Right. Um, sorry, we don't have that. She's been healthy. Okay. I told you she's been healthy yeah, all her life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The reason she's 88 is she hasn't gone to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'll, I'll phrase it as a hypothetical. Let's say it's a, a great man in his 90s of perfect health who has had normal hemoglobins his whole life, suddenly comes in with a hemoglobin of, of eight. What kind of red flags are you guys worried about there? It's as far as we know for like her and that, is there like hemolysis going on or is there mm -hmm. um, like yeah. a, a cold? Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm sure you guys remember from, you know, learning through third year clerkship, you know, unexplained iron deficiency anemia, in a, you know, otherwise healthy elderly person is colon cancer until proven otherwise. Um, sometimes not always the case, but a good, a good thing to always keep in mind. Um, I'm seeing in the chat malignancy, GI bleed as well. Um, you know, there wasn't, I don't think there was like a, rec, a DRE included in the physical exam. So that like, you know, was maybe another something to think about. So I think you guys are definitely like starting to think on the right, things in terms of the right things. I really like what I'm hearing so far. I guess now when I'm looking at this just now, I'm thinking what could, what could tie it together? These two processes, like what could account for what looks like to be an iron deficient anemia picture and a protein, a low protein process. So does something tie that in? Something like Crohn's disease. I yeah. Mean, she has no history of it, but. I think it has like a, a biphasic kind of arc onset. It could tie it together because it can cause protein malabsorption, um, but at the same time can kind of cause that um, anemia. Uh, that's a great, great thought. I mean, 
great reasoning there in terms of that. Yeah, yeah very good thought. Let's uh. You could, I yeah, know, go ahead. Know, like a, we're thinking colon cancer. It could be colon yeah. cancer that metastasized to the liver. Okay. Since that's mm -hmm. its number one mm -hmm. point in metastasis. Yeah, I like your thinking there too. A mess to the liver. Are we losing albumin production? Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue with a little more labs. Well, what would you guys, uh, before we go um, for our discussions, what would you guys, what other studies um, would you guys be interested in, in obtaining? Any other lab values? Um, I heard someone talk about um, like hemolysis. Are you guys interested in hemolysis labs, things like that? LDH, HAPDO, et cetera. I guess iron studies too. Yeah. Looking at Look at some iron studies. Iron was low at 20. Her TIEC was 220. Her percent SAT was nine, which is low. Ferritin was low at 52. Um, folic acid and B12 were with normal limits. Her CRP was elevated at 23.6. Dr. Abrams also ordered celiac IgA, and that came back difficult to interpret, but it's slightly too. And then he also had a, a stool calprotectin, which was markedly elevated at 1,675. Um, let's let's break this in chunks. So let's first let's talk about the, the iron studies. Would does, does this help you guys? How do you interpret these? I think it kind of solidifies for us that it's an iron deficiency in the yeah. yeah. low iron, low mm -hmm. ferritin, high TIBC is kind of that like class of what we would be looking for. Yeah, great. Exactly. Awesome. Um, yeah, go ahead, Tom. Oh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, very Exactly this um, kind of hair song that's uh, an IDA. And then uh, with the CRP, what does that raise us on? Just that there's an inflammatory process going on. Exactly. It's not specific, right? Like, right. it's inflammation is occurring. Is how I always try to. Put that in context. And then the IgA for the celiac antibody test, it's a little bit elevated, so we, we can keep thinking about it. I don't, I don't have much experience um, in seeing a lot of celiac agents, but I would kind of anticipate that it would, we'd be expecting a, a more significant change from the normal values. But how about the stool calprotectin? I didn't know what that was, so if, if you guys don't know. I needed my memory. <laughs> I remember, right, it's something that can correlate to is this, like, an inflammatory-related kind of diarrhea. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's exactly So it's, it's core, yeah, correlates with the level of inflammation and, yeah, and diarrhea in, in, the, in the GI realm. So it, it sort of has a relation to the severity of what's going on as well. Yeah, no, great. I'm impressed. Definitely had to look this one up. Um, <laughs> yeah, good job, guys. understand what an elevated level even suggested and... I think it's one of those times where you know you get one case on your rotation and it just sits. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a second. I thought it'd be a good point to just briefly go over iron deficiency in you. That's a big topic, and a lot of patients have it. And I like. I think Sam already hit it on the head with the lab diagnosis. That's that's a core question all the time. Like, you're gonna have the decreased MCV. RDW is gonna be up. It's normally microcytic. Um, ferritin and iron are down, and then transferrin up. What causes iron deficiency anemia? I like to think of it in three buckets. Is this because we're losing blood or iron? Um, is it an absorption problem or is there an increased demand? So like we've already talked about, is she hemolyzing? Is it colon cancer? Um, does she have an underlying malignancy? Is she malnourished? She's not taking PPIs. Does she have a gastritis, celiac disease? Um, and then just some other things to keep in mind are complications of you know, something, if there's been more longer standing iron deficiency, you can get things like plumber Vincent, restless leg is associated with it. Then you also have the physical exam findings of ascites, eca, pilosis, or the, the nail finding that I won't try to pronounce, soiling, chia. But I just thought this would be a good point to kind of go over Dr. Avery. Soiling, chia. Soiling, chia. I just think of it, the nails skating in, right? Yeah, spooling of the nails. Before you guys go on, because we're getting close to the end here, I, I actually maybe would say, 
at least in your own mind, can you sum up this case up to this point right now? So if I said, give me one sentence or two sentences at most about this case as, as you see it now, how would you describe it? So this is a 88 year old woman, obviously who presents with edema and tell me about your thought processes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one sentence, I know that's hard. So I guess I would start with it's our 88 year old female who has a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, um, there's one other. And he presents with three months of kind of chronic progressive by lower or bilateral lower extremity edema that's been resistant to furosemide treatment. Like on physical, like physical exam is only significant for bilateral lower extremity edema. And then on lab, she was found to have a microcytic anemia, well, iron deficiency anemia, and Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, what bucket would you put this into? Is, is there a bucket that you could put this into right now, at least in your own mind? So you could say, I know this is a CH. I know this isn't her heart. I know this isn't her, I, I don't think it's her heart. I don't think it's her liver. I don't think it's her kidneys. Mm -hmm. yeah. You think it's GI. I think it's, so you think it's GI. And, and, and as I think of it, and if it's GI, tying it to her low albumin, it's it's a protein losing enteropathy. Is that, is that, that yeah. kind of the way you would characterize it? I think so. Tom, you agree? Yes, I think they are on the right track. I like what I'm hearing. What what kind of what would you hope to get next to kind of help support our thought process now? I think she probably needs a colonoscopy. Okay. Yeah. The next alibot is actually imaging. And I, I thought colonoscopy too. <laughs> this, this will be a good teaching point. So she had a CT enterography done. Um, it showed small bowel narrowing strictures with mural enhancement. There was wall thickening of the distal ilium. There's some the small bilateral pleural fusions, left, greater than the right, compressive atelectasis. She had pelvic free fluid, which was an unanticipated finding in a patient of this age. So we'll, we'll first talk about the findings, then we can talk about this just imaging study um, more generally. What sticks out? So the small bowel narrowing structures and the mural hyperenhancement sounds like, uh, I mean, it, so because it's in the small bowel and it's not starting from like the, the rectum, it would be of the irritable bowel diseases, it would be Crohn's more sure. likely than ulcerative colitis, like Sam was saying earlier. How about mural? Like for me, mural is always a buzz for Crohn's, right? Yeah. It's the transmural process. And then like, like Clara already mentioned, yeah, there's no colonic or rectal involvement, but you have the small bowel, distal ilium. Um, seems like it's all pointing towards the Crohn's picture. So we can just talk about these studies and what other options there are also um, at this like juncture in the case. So a CT enterography is useful for detecting small bowel inflammation and complications. It, it actually has a sensitivity of about 90%. It does require IV contrast and has a radiation risk. Um, an alternative would be an MR enterography. You avoid that radiation risk. Um, it's good at detecting abscesses and it may even distinguish between um, a, fri a fibrotic or an inflammatory structure. There's also capsule endoscopy, which the field seems to be moving more and more towards. And this was something I just found on review. Um, it can actually visualize aphthous ulcers that CT and MR can't pick up. Um, some, are, some studies more recently have suggested improved sensitivity. Um, their, their recommendations are they have to rule out a structure first. And I was like, oh, why? Well, the capsule can get stuck, right? <laughs> But it, it actually sounds like there's been some advances where now these capsules dissolve. So that may change and this may become the preferred recommendation. I don't know, Dr. Evans, you can comment why 
you went with imaging before colonoscopy. The reason for imaging initially was that, again, people felt that this was a protein-losing enteropathy, and it was probably at least in the small bowel. And remember, when you do colonoscopy, you know, maybe you can get into the terminal ileum, maybe you can't get into the terminal ileum. And so you want, so you wanted to, everybody wanted to take a look at the small ball first to see what, to see, to see what was there. And, uh, you know, could you have been faulted for doing it the other way around? Absolutely not. But, but that I think was the driver for, for, for doing the engine first. Yeah, I, th I think it's good to review, you know, when, when you consult GI and, and you ask for a scope, like what can they visualize with their various tools and modalities. And like Dr. Abrams said, you know, colonoscopy will go um, maybe up to the terminal ileum, maybe not quite past it. Um, and then upper endoscopy gets to maybe the second part of the duodenum and no further. So you're missing a good chunk of the small intestine between those. So that's where, um, you know, CTA, CTE or MRE or um, capsule um, endoscopy comes into play. And just another reason to point push towards that is Crohn's a skip lesion, right? We don't want to miss it. I think it's just more comprehensive that way. You guys have been great. Your reasoning's been incredible. The next Alipot will reveal the final diagnosis. So I'll ask you guys both now to you know, put your nickel down and tell me what you think so on. Yeah, same. So uh, the final diagnosis, the biopsy was taken of the small bowel um, and other random places. So what it shows was <laughs> in the terminal ileum. Excellent. There was the, the ileal mucosa with patchy mildly acidiliitis and scattered non-KCD granulomas. There's also non-KCD granulomas found in the colon and the rectum. So you guys nailed it. Great job. Um, I was, I was kind of lost for words when Sam. Yeah, I was so At Alibot 4, the CBC and CMP. So great job. But it just shows you're, you're thinking about, I think the physical exam directed us away from all the things we were, would immediately think it would be. And then we had to readjust our thinking and you did that great off just with labs. So great job, guys. Yeah, that was fabulous. And, and, and you know, the hard thing was she really had no GI symptoms yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. And she had, even after we knew, we went back and asked her and she had none whatsoever. And, wow. and remember, Crohn's can present that way. I mean, Crohn's can present, and actually it's fairly common to present as a wasting disease. So some people have no diarrhea. And, uh, but she had absolutely nothing. Literally, her legs were swollen. <laughs> so, yeah, great job, guys. We're going to have Tommy walk us through some teaching points on Crohn's. There we go. All right. So, uh, for those of you watching, this is this is a busy slide. But I'll try and make it fast and, and high yield. Um, so, Crohn's disease, like we talked about, uh, actually the common symptoms are going to be abdominal pain, diarrhea is typically non-bloody, the apis ulcers in the upper GI tract, um, malabsorption, which is the key finding that our patient had, um, had some iron deficiency anemia, had some hypoproteinemia. Um, and hypocalcemia. Also, Crohn's disease has a lot of extra-intestinal manifest manifestations, uh, arthritis, uveitis, fluoritis, um, erythematodosum, skin tags, and fistulas. Um, and then in terms of diagnosis, um, you'll see our patient had a tiny white count. It was like 10.09. Um, you'll see IDA, increased inflammatory markers. Our patient had an elevated CRP. Um, and then obviously you have your endoscopic findings, skip lesions, cobblestoning. Um, and then it's important, I think, to think about the complications. Right. So with Crohn's disease, the main uh, things you get worried about are stricturing in the bowel, which can lead to obstruction uh, and require surgery or high level management. And then fistulas, which can lead to uh, intra-abdominal infections, intra-abdominal abscesses um, and lead patients to be really, really sick. That's that's like one of the key things I, I would like you guys to remember. And then from one of the GA, one of the um, IBD fellows when I was on GI, you always want to say whether their disease is stricturing, fistulizing when you're presenting a patient um, so you can know what complications they've had or what complications they're at risk of. And I put in a little bit about the symptom progression, um, no mild, 
just, you know, diarrhea, abdominal pain, but they're still able to take PO and they haven't had any obstructions or um, real real bad complications. And then going up to moderate, you know, they failed treatment um, with like a first line agent. You need to add something else, maybe some nausea, vomiting, more severe anemia, um, and then severe patients. So those are going to be moderate and severe are going to be usually the people you encounter in the hospital. Severe is going to be people who are toxic, high fevers, obstruction, fistulas, abscesses. Um, and interestingly, the symptoms don't correlate very well with the presence of inflammation. Um, so when you're admitting a new Crohn's diagnosis or you're admitting a Crohn's patient or you're seeing them in clinic, um, initial things to think about are getting a CBC to look for anemia, a CRP to see, um, you know, just to check kind of baseline inflammation. You want to get a C diff, mortality rates really high Crohn's patients. Um, again, fecal calprotectin. Um, you can also get fecal leukocyte esterase, which correlate with uh, disease like activity disease level, which is what I was trying to say earlier about giving the answer away. Um, then CTE or MRE, uh, you get an MRI pelvis. Um, for a new admission, you really want to know their medication regimen, um, know like what's worked for them in the past, what doses steroids. Um, for steroids, you never want to start, you don't want to go over 60 and you like never want to taper them without talking to GI. You want to make sure they have GI follow-up, never taper by more than like five milligrams a week, I think. And, uh, yeah, control their pain, uh, get GI on board as soon as possible. Um, and then about one in three patients are steroid dependent. Um, and I forget how that's defined. Uh, and then one in five will be steroid refractory. And then lastly, things that put patients at high risk for progression of Crohn's disease, even though there is a bimodal peak, the younger you are diagnosed at, the more likely you are to have complications. Um, obviously initial extensive involvement in the bowel, involvement in the um, ileal region, um, severe rectal disease. And then obviously a lot of them, only 20 to 30 patients will have like a really indolent course. A lot of patients will, will progress, um, you know, over the course of their disease and up to 80% will be, will be hospitalized. Um, so yeah, the treatment is a whole complicated thing. IV fellowship is something else on top of GI fellowship. So I'm not qualified to talk about it, but you know, it's, it's, um, you know, immunomodulators, anti-TNFs, uh, ISA, and then steroids are the, the things you'll hear about. So you can have the GI fellows tell you more. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but Tommy, you're right. The biologics have really sort of changed the long-term outcome of this disease because it was, it, it was historically a steroid disease and, uh, just so many of these patients would progress. And we don't see them now, but I, I saw so many people, you know, they, they get steroids, they get an operation, they get steroids and operation. Yeah. Soon they have, soon they have shortcut syndrome and they were impossible to, they were essentially impossible to treat. I did want to question for the discussants and hopefully this is not, I guess what I'm thinking, but um, if you were going to start a biologic, what like infections should you think about checking for before you start? TB. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Lauren, you guys too, about like a millisecond in the chat. Right. So yeah. TB and hepatitis panels are, are important to check. Um, as, as well, um, before starting things like, um, you know, Humira, Infliximab, Tisabri, Intivio, all that, all those great, uh, all those great things. Uh, so I hope that wasn't too long and boring, but um, oh, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. If you guys have a chance to do GI this year, you guys should, it's, it's a great rotation. Oh, this was um, just a quick, just contrasting UC and Crohn's. I kind of talked about most of it already. Um, one of the, just the main difference, you know, UC always involves a rectum. Um, obviously Crohn's disease typically involves a terminal ileus, small bowel, but it can, can be found anywhere. Um, you guys remember non-casein and granulomas from step one. Um, uh, but the one, the one thing um, that you'll impress your attendings uh, in the future is if you get a UC patient that's admitted, you always want to get a KUB to make sure they don't have toxic megacolon um, because that's like the fear complication, complication for UC. So always get a KUB on admission to make sure they don't have that. Great Pearl, great Pearl. Yeah. Uh, and then to wrap things up, we're, we're bringing it back with Dr. Abrams' historical perspective. Okay, so I uh, had a chance to read about the history of this. And, and, and the first thing I'll say is the first paper published on this was in JAMA back in the 30s. And it was written by, it was actually authored by three people. And the first person's name was Burrell Crone. And so, and they put their names in alphabetical order. So he, although there were two other people on this paper, he's the one that is, is credited with it. And, and he spent the rest of his career saying that it shouldn't be named after him. But, but anyhow, so here's my historical fact about Crohn's disease. Um, and so this is, jumps ahead a number of years. 
So in the early hours of June 9, 1956, President Dwight Eisenhower was operated on a worsening bowel obstruction that had begun 24 hours earlier. He had a long history of intermittent gastrointestinal symptoms throughout his life. And actually in 1922, when he graduated West Point, he was out in the Panama Canal zone and he developed a abdominal pain and weight loss. And based upon his own self-diagnosis, he was convinced that this was his appendix. And he actually persuaded the doctors when he got back to do an appendectomy on him. And unfortunately he did get better. And so over the years, he underwent numerous evaluations. Uh, he had x-rays in 1949 that revealed some irregularity of the caliber of the small bowel. And actually a month before his surgery, 1956, he had some small bowel x-rays that, that really sort of revealed a picture that was, that was very typical of Crohn's involving his terminal illness. Anyhow, so the operation that he had performed that morning was not a bowel resection, but he had a bypass of his 40 centimeters of his diseased terminal ileum. And so essentially they took the healthy bowel above the disease area and they anastomosis to his transverse colon. And uh, he made a good recovery after that and different times in the hospital, 21 days, but, but did really well. And there was a lot of criticism around the decision to do the bypass as opposed to just resecting the colon. And uh, essentially what the surgeon said, if anybody knows about Eisenhower, it turns out he had a big, he had a really a massive MI about, about uh, six months before this happened. And so a surgeon said, there's no way I can do this. I got to get in and out as quickly as, as possible. He also said, when I went in there, you know, it, the, the, the tissue looked dry. It didn't look like it was, you know, it didn't look soft and, and, and gucky. So he, he justified it by saying, look good. I got to get in and out of there. So Eisenhower actually had an autopsy. I guess all the presidents did at that time. So when he died in 1969, they did an autopsy on him and they looked at his terminal ileum and uh, it was, here's in quotes, characteristic of relatively quiescent Crohn's disease. So as far as I know, Eisenhower was the only president that had inflammatory bowel disease. <laughs> <laughs> um, so well, end on that note, guys, um, thanks for tuning in. Um, if, if you have any interest in coming on and be discussing, please reach out. Or if you have any interesting cases that you want to present, um, we're looking to add to our cases. Hopefully, we'll transition to two episodes in, in the future. And then stay tuned to see what cases we have. We're going to bring some special guests on. So thanks to Sam and Clara for joining us today. Thanks, Tommy, for joining us also, and Dr. Abrams. And, and we got one last thing is we got to congratulate Kevin on his upcoming wedding. <laughs> Yeah, yeah congrats, Kevin. <laughs> um, all right, guys, on that note, uh, we'll sign off. Keep it 8 times 3.